um, I use the, li the New Living Translation of the Bible. So if when I'm reading scripture, it sounds a little bit different, that's why. Okay, let's get started. Well, today we continue our study of Romans in chapter 11. Chapters 9 and 10 deal with the heartbreaking problem that most of the people of Israel have rejected their Messiah and therefore are cut off from Christ, which raises a deeper problem. What becomes of God's promised faithfulness to his people? Has God canceled the kingdom of Israel in favor of a universal, internal kingdom, one that exists symbolically in the hearts of believers? Has he canceled his earthly kingdom? Has he canceled all the promises of the Jews in favor of the church? Before we begin to examine this portion of God's word, we need to understand something that speaks to the heart of this chapter. The Bible makes it very clear that God can be trusted, that he keeps his word. If he says something is going to happen, then that's exactly what's going to happen. There are countless examples in scripture that assert this truth, not the least of which comes from our Savior's own mouth in John 17, 17, when praying to the Father, Jesus says, thy word is truth. God is a God who keeps his promises. There are no changes. No one can void God's promises. There are no, excuse me, the Old Testament is filled with very specific promises made to his chosen people, Israel, including the adoption and the glory, the covenant and the giving of the law. The question of God keeping those promises is a much bigger question than a difference of opinion about the end times. The question of God keeping his promises is one of divine integrity because, because if God has canceled or changed his promises to Israel, ladies, we are in one world of hurt because we have a God who cannot be trusted and who is capable of changing his mind and, and altering his promises to us as he did to them. What you thought was a sure foundation of solid rock suddenly becomes shifting sand. Chapter 11 gives us Paul's answer to the question, has God canceled his promises to Israel? Has he cast off his people? Paul emphatically answers, of course not. Paul uses the strongest negative in the Greek language, showing that this would be impossible. The thought is utterly ridiculous. Even though Israel has committed evil, even though they have turned from their Messiah and plotted his death, the promises of God stand. Psalm 89, 31 and following asserts that Israel's continual disobedience will result in discipline, but God would never break faith with them. Throughout all their history, Israel did disobey. Evil ran rampant. There was constant and continual sinning but through it all, God remembered his covenant. When they cried out, he mercifully heard and rescued them. In this present age, there is a partial setting aside of the nation of Israel. Those who remain in unbelief and continue to deny their Messiah have no part in him. As proof, Paul declares himself to be a Jew, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. If God cast away his people, 
he wouldn't have come to salvation. The unbelief of Israel, their rejection of Christ, their hatred of the gospel was all personified in Paul, wasn't it? He was one Jew that should never have entered into the covenant promises. A Christ-hating, Christian-killing Jew who is now the leading spokesman for the Christian faith, only through the grace of God. Would Paul spend his entire life preaching a gospel that he was shut out from? No. He is living proof that the setting aside of Israel in judgment is only partial. In verse 2, Paul continues proclaiming that God has not rejected his own people, whom he chose from the very beginning. What does he cite as further proof? The remnant. Throughout the history of Israel, there has always been a remnant. He uses Elijah as an example. Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom, sent to confront that infamous power couple, Ahab and Jezebel. You can read about him in 1 Kings. After God worked an overwhelming miracle through Elijah in defeating the prophets of Baal, Jezebel retaliated by threatening Elijah's life, and he ran. Elijah felt completely alone and complained to the Lord, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I alone am left, and now they are trying to kill me too. God's reply to him was, you are not the only one left. I have 7,000 who have never bowed down to Baal. God always has a remnant. Verses 5 through 6. It is the same today. For, all, for not all the Jews have turned away from God. A few are being saved as a result of God's kindness in choosing them. And if they are saved by God's kindness, then it has nothing to do with their good works. Because if that was the case, God's wonderful kindness would not be what it is, what it really is, free and undeserved. God has always had a faithful group of people in Israel. It's never been the entire nation. It's always been selected. It wasn't all the children of Abraham, just Isaac. It wasn't the children of Esau, but of Jacob. It's always been a godly seed, a remnant. In verse 7, Paul continues, so this is the situation. Most of the Jews have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. A few have, the ones chosen by God. But the rest were made unresponsive. The Jewish people were fanatically religious, weren't they? In chapter 10, Paul says they have a zeal for God, but it's a zeal minus fear and knowledge of the Lord. They're ignorant of God's righteousness as they go about trying to establish their own righteousness, which is utterly impossible. They live for this, keeping all the rules, the ceremonies, the rituals, the laws. It makes me tired just saying it, and I'm sure I don't know the half of what they go through. Seeking for righteousness, sadly, their own righteousness, without submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. Never learning that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Israel is going their own way, being unresponsive to God, wanting to achieve their own righteousness. Yet God graciously and mercifully extends his hand of salvation and the ones he chooses come, demonstrating that God is not through with Israel. Now Paul quotes from the Old Testament 
to show that this isn't a surprise to God. God knew the Jews would reject the gospel. Their rejection is, in fact, a judgment on them because of their obstinate disobedience. Verse 8, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this very day, he has shut their eyes so they do not see and closed their ears so they do not hear. This is a melding of two Old Testament scriptures. The first part comes from Isaiah 29.10, and the second half is from Deuteronomy 29.4. Paul uses a passage from Isaiah and another from Moses. The rejection of Israel should be no surprise. It happened in the time of Moses and in the, and in the day of Isaiah. Another Old Testament great David is quoted in verses 9 and 10. Let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes, them, that makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see, and let their backs grow weaker and weaker. This comes from Psalm 69, where David pronounces a curse on the enemies of God. He prays for judgment to fall on them. John MacArthur says, I suppose you wouldn't think there was any safer place than at your own table, right? Where you're eating your own food, the place of feasting, the place of celebrating, the place of joy, the place of festivity, the secure place of plenty. What you have pictured here is the Jews feasting. And what is the Jews food? The law of God. And it is that very law that becomes the trap. That very law becomes the snare. Let it be that when they think they're feasting on the word of God, that word itself becomes the trap that catches them. End quote. God is judging his people for their willful rejection. Israel is blinded to the truth for a time. In other words, Israel's unbelief doesn't alter the plan of God. It is the plan of God. Verses 11 and 12 delineate that plan. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. His purpose was to make his salvation available to the Gentiles, and then the Jews would be jealous and want it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the Jews turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when the Jews finally accept it. God planned that through the Jewish nation, all the world would come to know God. Israel was to follow God and influence those with whom they came in contact. Paul loved his people and wanted to give them every opportunity to join them, to join him in proclaiming God's salvation. In Acts 13, 46 and 47, Paul told the Jewish leaders in Antioch who were slandering him and arguing against the gospel. It was necessary that this good news from God be given first to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, well, we will offer it to the Gentiles. For this is as the Lord commanded us when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. God had planned Israel to be his light. Through Israel came Jesus, the light of the nations. Yet many of his people refused to recognize him as Messiah, and they didn't understand that God was offering salvation to anyone, Jew or Gentile, who would come to him through faith alone, by grace alone. 
So the obstinate blindness of the Jews leads to the salvation of the Gentiles. The Jews have refused to be the vessel God used to reach the Gentiles, so they have been temporarily set aside. The first reason is Gentile salvation. The second is Jewish jealousy. Paul asserts that the purpose in God allowing the Jews to stumble wasn't to destroy them forever, but to bring about Gentile salvation, which would in turn provoke them to jealousy so they too might be saved. The word jealousy here is used in a positive sense. It denotes admiration or a striving after. In other words, Israel would see the Gentile church, see how blessed it is, and what a privilege it is to know Christ, to be redeemed. These individual Jews would see what they missed, and seeing the glory of God given to the Gentile church be drawn to Jesus Christ. Israel, seeing the privilege of the Gentiles, will desire that privilege for themselves. This should humble us to the very tips of our toes. God sovereignly set aside his chosen people so that we might hear the good news and have a chance to believe. What a privilege, ladies, and what a responsibility. Our lives should be powerful, hopeful testimonies of what God can do in a life. Our lives should be attractive to Jews. How we act, how we speak, how we show the love of Jesus can be the single greatest testimony we have to the people of Israel. If Israel's unbelief brought us salvation, how much more will Israel's faith bring? When Israel finally believes, what's going to happen? They'll look on him whom they pierced, and the Lord will give them their kingdom. That's the promise of the prophets. The coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is a time when the redeemed nation of Israel will reign and bring people from all around the world to see Christ. There will be one law and one king, the millennial kingdom. What a wonderful promise to look forward to. Paul goes on to say in verses 13 through 15, I'm committed to be what God has appointed me to be, the apostle to the Gentiles, in order to provoke Jewish jealousy, to bring life to the dead. Paul ministers with this purpose in mind, that the setting aside of Israel brings Gentile salvation and will lead, and will lead when the Jews finally come back to the blessing of the world in the millennial kingdom. In verses 16, 16 through 24, Paul warns Gentile Christians not to feel superior because God rejected some Jews. It might be easy for Gentiles to look down on Jews because they rejected the Messiah, crucified him, and have turned their back on him throughout the years. As a matter of fact, I was taught this very thing in my denomination's religious instruction classes when I was a child, that the Jews were under permanent condemnation because they rejected and killed Jesus. Paul uses two analogies to make his point. The first is that if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. This comes from Numbers 15, the objective being that each time dough was prepared for making bread, a piece was pulled off the larger portion and was given to the Lord. It was taken to the temple, or it was given to the priest, and that was sustenance for the priest, but it was an offering to the Lord. Each piece was a symbol of the dedication of the whole. That's what Paul is saying here. 
If the first fruit is set apart, devoted to God, then the whole lump is consecrated. His second analogy is if the root is set apart, so are the branches. It's the same idea. So what is Paul intending to convey with these analogies? Simply, if one portion of the Jewish people is consecrated to the Lord, then all the rest must be also. Who are the first fruits? The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. If God set apart the first fruits, then he was setting apart the whole lump. If God set apart the root, who is Abraham, then he's setting apart the branches. The basis for believing that Israel will return to salvation is the fact that God consecrated the patriarchs to himself, and due to that consecration, he has in them consecrated the whole. Paul continues with his tree analogy, adding in a grafting process in verse 17. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the Jews have been broken off, and you Gentiles who were branches from a wild olive tree were grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in God's rich nourishment of his special olive tree. Notice that some of the branches were broken off, not all of them, emphasizing his point that God in his providence there has, has, has retained a remnant. Okay, so I'm no arborist, but it's my understanding that the unproductive branches are always cut off because those branches would sap some of the strength from the tree. They would also crowd the tree so that sunlight and air couldn't penetrate the grafted branches. That's how we have been grafted in and become people of blessing. We are Abraham's spiritual children, and the covenant blessing that flowed through Abraham has flowed to us because we are grafted in. What kindness. That's all it is, ladies. We have nothing to boast about. As Paul states in verses 18 through 21, it's ridiculous to boast against the branches that were cut off because those grafted in don't carry the root. The root carries them. We're not the source of our own blessedness. We owe our blessings to the covenant God made with Abraham. He goes on to assert that we can't even boast that were a better branch than the one that was cut off to make room for us. There is absolutely no room for an attitude that looks down on the Jews. Faith is the only issue. They didn't believe, you believe. That's all. So don't think you're all that in a great big bag of chips. The only difference between you and the apostate Jew is he didn't believe and you did believe. Do we believe because we're more worthy of salvation? Nope. It's all about the grace of God. Our attitude should be one of healthy fear. Verse 21. If God did not spare the branches he put there in the first place, he won't spare you either. If God didn't spare those who were his beloved people, the apple of his eye, in their unbelief, mark this, he won't spare the Gentiles either. We have become a people by grace, but if God acted the way he did against his own natural branches, then if we as a church universal enter into unbelief, he'll cut the church off just as fast, just as, fast as he cut Israel off. What do we see in Christendom today? 
rejection of the truth of scripture, attacks on the deity of Jesus, denial of the full attributes of a holy God, acceptance of abhorrent behaviors in the name of love and tolerance. We have a universal church that is mostly unbelieving. Praise God, there is a remnant. The day is fast approaching when the Lord is going to cut off the Gentiles just as he cut off the natural branches. Revelation 3.16 But since you are like lukewarm water, I will spit you out of my mouth. Verse 22 Now notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe to those who disobey, but kind to you as you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. There is a sense of severity in this sentence. Those who stop, stop trusting will never trust again. They fall never to rise again, and they are cut right off. A very harsh act, as if they are going along, and all of a sudden, boom, they're instantly cut off. Verses 23 and 24 speak for themselves. And if the Jews turn from their unbelief, God will wrap them back into the tree again. He has the power to do it. For if God was willing to take you, who were by nature branches from a wild olive tree, and graft you into his own good tree, a very unusual thing to do, he will be far more eager to graft the Jews back into the tree where they belong. The destiny of Israel can be reversed. God has the power to accomplish this. And not just the power, but the will. Do they come to faith? The prophet Zechariah says they will. Zechariah 12.10 and 13.1. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on all the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. On that day, a fountain will be opened for the dynasty of David and for the people of Jerusalem, a fountain to cleanse them from all their sins and defile them. The apostate church will be cut off and Israel will be grafted back in and will once again become the people of blessing. Paul says he wants us to understand the mystery in verses 25 and 26. Some of the Jews have hard hearts, but this will last only until the complete number of Gentiles comes to Christ. A mystery is something that's hidden in the past and is now revealed in Scripture. So what was hidden in the past? That Israel would be set aside, Gentiles grafted in, ultimately Gentiles cut off, and Israel grafted back into the place of blessing. That mystery was now being revealed through the Apostle Paul. The Jews have hardened hearts and are blinded to the truth, but only for a time, as indicated by the word, until. How long will they be blinded? Until the complete number of Gentiles who are entering the kingdom have come to know the Lord. The fullness of the Gentiles will signal the beginning of God redeeming Israel. The apostate church will be cut off and the Jews will be redeemed and grafted back in. When the final elect Gentile comes to faith, this brings about the salvation of Israel. And that salvation, or the fullness of Israel, brings about the kingdom. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. 
The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. You can't bypass the fact, doctrinally, that someday God will redeem the nation of Israel. That doesn't mean every single individual Jew will be saved. There will be some who continue in rebellion. But when God reaches out to redeem his regathered people, the vast majority will believe in their Messiah and be saved. Paul relies on God's sovereignty and his integrity. God doesn't sit up in heaven reacting to man's actions. He's not adjusting to what happens in the world. He's not replanning and tearing up the old plans that haven't worked out. God is controlling history. His plan for the ultimate salvation of Israel is right on track. No need to worry. He will save Israel because he is a God who keeps his promises. He refers to Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. A deliverer will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel from all ungodliness. And then I will keep my covenant with them and take away their sins. During the time of Abraham, covenants were cut by blood. The parties would cut an animal in half and then walk, between, walk together between the pieces of the animal, swearing to each other to keep their promise. In Genesis 15, which, Lord willing, we will be studying in the fall, we read about the Abrahamic covenant. God instructed Abraham to cut a lot of dead animals and lay them on the ground. Once that was accomplished, Abraham went into a deep sleep. God didn't let Abraham go between the animals. He went through alone because God was making a covenant that wasn't dependent on Abraham, but a covenant dependent on his own unchangeable nature. The redemption of Israel is based upon an unconditional covenant from God that would bless the people who come from Abraham. In verses 28 and 29, Paul reiterates that many Jews are enemies of the gospel, but this has been a benefit to the Gentiles. However, the Jews are still God's chosen people because of the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Paul gives a summation in verses 30 through 32, emphasizing God's mercy, which points to his generosity. Salvation is undeserved goodness. Mercy is God withholding the punishment we deserve and instead granting us forgiveness. The Gentile has, has obtained God's merciful salvation because of Jewish unbelief. Jewish unbelief brought Gentile blessing. Gentile blessing creates Jewish jealousy, 
and out of their jealousy, they will be drawn back to salvation. There will come a day when the Jews desire to possess the blessing that we who know Christ possess. And then, as a result of their salvation, comes the promised kingdom. Verse 32 says that God has imprisoned all people in their own disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. Basically, God has allowed man to fall into a state where he doesn't allow himself to be convinced of the truth of God and of his word, so that the only way he can be saved is outside of his own power by the mercy of God. Now, this everyone is not talking about universal salvation, rather reiterating that God's mercy is for both the Jew and the Gentile. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God has been merciful to you. That's the only reason, so that all the glory and praise go to him. How fitting that Paul breaks into the doxology, verses 33 through 36. Oh, what a wonderful God we have. How great are his riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. John MacArthur sums it up quite nicely. It isn't that Paul is thrown by the things he doesn't know about God. It is that the things that are revealed have a depth to them that if you follow long enough, you realize you can't reach. So the wonder in his mind is not the wonder of what is not revealed, but it is the inconceivable wonder of what is revealed. The doxology rises out of the reality that even looking at what has been revealed in the plan of God, one is absolutely overwhelmed with the mind of God. How God could pull it all off and make it all happen. And, try, and to try to plumb the depths of all of God's thinking and all of God's planning. The whole scheme of salvation is so grandiose, so profound, so deep, so filled with wonder that he's absolutely overwhelmed by it. End quote. Our God is unfathomable, isn't he, ladies? The wisdom, knowledge, judgment, and direction of what has been revealed to us is incomprehensible. No one of us can perfectly know the mind of God. Not a single one of us is capable of giving him any advice. He is not in anyone's debt. His favor is never, ever owed to anyone, never, ever earned by anyone. He fulfills his plan because of his own character, because he graciously keeps his promises. So what is our proper response? We glorify him and we live by faith. The first question in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? The answer? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you that you do keep your promises. We thank you that you are a God we can trust. We can have confidence, Lord, because we have put our trust in you. We believe that if we trust you and confess you as Lord and believe in our hearts that you have been raised from the dead, we'll be saved. You will save us from sin and death. Help us to live in the light of that belief. 
and to bring you honor and glory by the way we choose to live in obedience to you and to your word. Help us to go from here trusting you, believing in you, honoring you with our lives. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you, ladies.